Uh, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, please could you keep your Bible open, if you've got a Bible app or something like that, to our passage today, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12. And if you're using the sermon outline, don't, because I'm not using it anymore. Okay? So let us pray. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Consider this question. Where do you find security in the world? For many of us, recent months have brought the question of job security, financial security, and even political security into stark focus. What will happen if I lose my job? What will, it, what will happen if I can't support my children or my elderly parents? What will happen if I lose my insurance? Or what will happen if I get COVID? Or what will happen if there's a new government? What will happen to the church if there's a new government? In 2020, there have been many reasons to feel insecure. And in the past few weeks, as we've been looking at 1 Samuel, we learned that Israel too also had reasons to feel insecure. Israel was surrounded by advanced and aggressive nations, whilst they were armed with little more than farm tools. Israel wasn't so much bringing a knife to a gunfight, but a toothbrush to a gunfight. If those nations decided to attack Israel, they would be crushed. And so what did Israel do? Well, they did what any sensible nation would do, what we would probably do. They tried to secure themselves. And the way they did this was to appoint a strong central leader, a man who could command an army and fight their enemies. In short, Israel wanted a king. Now, for any other nation, that wouldn't have been a problem. It may even have been sensible. But Israel wasn't like any other nation. Israel was special. And what made them special could be summarized in one word, one very important biblical word, covenant. Israel was a nation covenanted to God. Now, in everyday language, what that means is this. God had made a binding relationship with Israel, a relationship which included promises and commitments. God was Israel's savior, their Lord, their great redeemer king. And as such, God demanded their exclusive worship. Israel was to love, to fear, to honor, to serve, and to obey God, and God alone. For as God himself declared in the words of the covenant, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And therefore for Israel, choosing a king was not simply a matter of political or military significance. It was theological. Because rather than trusting God as their king, they decided to trust a king whom they could see, whom they could choose, and whom they could control. In other words, they put their faith in a God substitute. And it is for that reason Israel's request for a king was a rejection of God, 
a betrayal of God. It was a violation of the covenant. Now, before we go any further, lest we are tempted to be smug, we must understand the Bible says that we are in the same basic position as them. Because each one of us here owes God personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And anything less than that is covenant betrayal. Are you obeying God in some areas, but not in others? That's betrayal. Are you obeying God sometimes, but not all of the time? That's betrayal too. And in today's passage, we get God's perspective on betrayal, on finding security in a God substitute. What does God think of that? Verse 17, that it is great wickedness. Verse 19, that it is an evil thing. Brothers and sisters, do not be misled. This passage is a conviction of our rebellion, not merely a conviction of theirs. And we must heed it carefully with a trembling heart. And it is to that end that I will pray again now that we may hear this rightly. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts by your Spirit, that we would be duly convicted of our sin, and therefore that we would find our security in you and only in you. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Now, sisters and brothers, to understand what we've got in this chapter, what we have today is a lawsuit. This is a trial. Samuel is prosecuting Israel, and it has three basic components. Number one, Israel's guilt is established. Number two, the consequences of that guilt are imposed. And number three, there is a response that is required of the people, right? I'm going to repeat that. Guilt is established, consequences are imposed, and a response is required. We're going to go through all of those three in turn. So first, look with me at verses 7 to 12. 7 to 12. In verse 7, Samuel tells us how he will establish Israel's guilt. What he's going to do is he's going to present Israel with a history of God's deeds as evidence against them. And as Samuel presents that history, there is a certain pattern of words that is repeated. Have a look again. Have a look at verse 8. Speaking of their fathers, Samuel says this, the Egyptians oppressed them, the fathers then cried out to God, and so God sent Moses and Aaron to rescue them. Then as we move on in verses 9 to 10, when Israel forgot the Lord, that's a sort of a biblical shorthand for committing idolatry and breaking the covenant, when the fathers forgot the Lord, God gave them over to the nations who oppressed them, and so Israel cried out to God again, and God once again sent people to rescue them. Now, this pattern of words reflects a repeated cycle in Israel's history, a cycle that we see routinely in Judges. And I think Samuel's basic point is this. Beginning with the Exodus, God has been faithful to his covenant people. When they cried out to him, even when they forgot him, turned to idols and violated the covenant, God still sent them deliverers. God was always faithful. But more than that, Samuel is saying that God's faithfulness had continued right up until the present day. 
Look carefully at verses 10 and 11 again. Notice that there is a mention of Samuel now by name, and also there is a transition from they, the fathers, to you, the present generation. In verse 10, they, that is the fathers, they cried out to the Lord. But in verse 11, the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, who was standing there, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies. In other words, Samuel is telling Israel, telling the people that God's faithfulness wasn't ancient history, but that it was recent history. And Samuel himself was the living evidence. He was the proof. Because like Moses and Aaron, God had sent Samuel. But that's not really the main point. The main point is coming. The main point is in verse 12. This is the climax. This is the punch. This is where Samuel drives home his point. Because given all of this history, look at that verse. I'm going to go from verse 11 to verse 12. Verse 11, the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Verse 12, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king will reign over us. Now, what's wrong there? What's wrong with that response? What did they do that was so awful? Remember, God had been faithful to his covenant people. He had been repeatedly faithful. Even when Israel betrayed him, turned to idols, and broke the covenant, God was still faithful. God still listened when they cried out to him, and he still sent saviors. But when Nahash arrived, what happened? Instead of the people crying out to God, instead of confessing that they had forsaken him, instead of calling upon God to save them as their fathers had done, instead of doing any of that, this time, this people asked for a king instead. In other words, that pattern we've seen from verses 8 to 11 is now broken, because instead of crying out to God, Israel have cried out for a king. And in other words, that means they have compounded their idolatry with an even greater idolatry. They have asked for a substitute savior, a different deliverer, another God. I'm going to pause for a moment here because this raises several issues that apply directly to us now. One, threats to our safety expose our true loyalty, just like it did with Nahash, because danger forces us to choose. Shall we ditch God now in exchange for worldly security, or shall we stick with him when it's going to be really difficult? Or perhaps if we ourselves are not in immediate danger now, are we avoiding forms of obedience that may be risky in order to preserve our comfort and our personal security? Well, if that's true, avoidance of obedience is still disobedience, and it is still covenant betrayal. We're traitors. Second point, when we don't find our security in God, we are necessarily forced to find it in creation. As nations, we will find it in economic strength, in military might, in political parties. As individuals, we find it in money, in education, in status, and success. But I want to address parents in particular, because I think when we think about our children, it reveals where our real idolatries lie. Parents, 
What do you think when I use the phrase, securing your child's future? Securing your child's future. Is it the path from good schooling to prestigious universities to prosperous careers? Is that securing them? Do you view America or England or Australia as their promised land, the place where they will be safe and blessed? Now, it is easy to trust these things for our security and our children's security because we can see them. We can look at our bank account, at our savings, at our insurance, and feel comforted, feel in control. But what we are actually doing is serving substitute gods, gods which we can see, little kings through which we can control our situation. And we do this because our hearts doubt whether God is really, truly in control. So we just better take a little bit of control back just to be on the safe side. But when we think about it, that makes no sense. Our God is the maker of heaven and earth and the ruler of creation, the sustainer, the governor of all things. Only he is in control of the world, and so only he can give us security in the world. And I think that's why in verses 17 and 18, when God sends thunder and rain, yes, it vindicates Samuel, yes, it suggests covenant curse, yes, it evokes Mount Sinai, but I think it also says to people, along with the rest of Samuel, yeah, you've chosen a king because you felt insecure and you felt anxious, but does your king control the weather? You made a wrong choice. You've worshipped the wrong God. You've put your security in the wrong place. Brothers and sisters, don't trade real security with God, eternal security, for false, deceptive security in the world. Your cash, your career, your credentials, your connections, these things cannot save you and they cannot, they will not save your children. And politics will never save the church. There is one redeemer, one refuge, one rock, the Lord of heaven and earth. And blessed are those who trust in him and only in him. And I think there's one other last application point so far on this bit. This is very chilling. It is possible for us to reject God whilst also believing that we are, in fact, worshipping God. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. Right? They think they're doing it in front of God, in the presence of God, pleasing to God. Now, if you read that verse in the light of Samuel's lawsuit and in the light of Israel's conviction for choosing a king, then that becomes very chilling. Because when the people made the king, appointed him, crowned him, even though they had been told that it was rejection of God twice, they still believed that they were doing it before the Lord. In fact, they rejoiced greatly. They were delighted. They were stoked. Isn't this great? delusional. Sisters and brothers, our hearts, they are deceitful. And one of the things they will do is they will disguise our idolatry as piety. 
our rebellion as worship. Our hearts will say to us that we are doing things for God, but when we're actually doing them for ourselves. Are you working that lucrative career for God? Or are you just deluding yourself that you are? I mean, when Jesus says you cannot serve God and money, how easy it is for us to justify to ourselves that we can, in fact, serve Jesus and have a lot of money on the side. And that's not idolatry. But we must be warned. Our hearts are deceitful. God knows the heart. And he knew, knows true worship from pretend worship. Let us test our hearts and offer to God true worship in humility, in reverence, in obedience, and in awe. So that's the first major point. Israel's guilt has been established. Now we're going to look at the second. The consequences of that guilt are now imposed. I want you to have a look at verses 14 and 15, please. Now, at first glance at these verses, it actually looks as though nothing much has really changed. We see the twofold form of the covenant, blessings on the one hand and curses on the other, just like Israel received from Moses. And I think that by itself is significant because it tells us that at one level, Israel's violation of the covenant hasn't actually changed the essential demand of the covenant, what it requires. And I think we see this clearly when we see the transition from verse 13 to 14 because there's a marked disjunction. Look at verse 13. Now behold the king whom you have chosen. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. It's about the king. They've asked for a king. They've got a king. Then verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve the Lord and obey the Lord's voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord. In other words, God is saying, you ask for a king, you've got a king, but I'm still your covenant Lord. I am the one you fear. I am the one you serve. I am the one you obey, not this king that you've chosen, not this idol. And this is true for us. Whatever substitutes for God that we create, that we put our trust in, they cannot, they will not dethrone God. For our God is enthroned in unchangeable glory. And the righteous requirement to love, honor, serve, and obey him abides forever. Our disobedience of the law does not change the demands of the law. It just changes our status under the law. We're traitors. Now, having said that, not everything actually is the same. Have a look again at verse 14. There is a development here in the covenant. Verse 14, read that again. If you'll fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, and... If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. In other words, from this point on, covenant blessing requires a faithful king. And if you put yourself in the shoes of Samuel's hearers, that's a big problem. Because they are now about to be represented before God by Saul, who you will remember last week was the guy hiding in the baggage. That's not great. 
But that wasn't just a problem with Saul, it was a problem with David and Solomon too. In fact, Israel had to wait for a thousand years and for the ascension of Christ for that to be resolved because Jesus is the only king who could and who did meet the demands of the covenant, both in his obedience on our behalf and in his death as the penalty for our sin. But the point I want to raise is not, you know, thank goodness that we now have Jesus so we don't have to worry about that anymore. But I want you to think just for a moment about the millennium of misery that Israel had to endure until that point. A thousand years of waiting for a king of all of those terrible kings, and they asked for it. Brothers and sisters, sin has consequences. It has far-reaching consequences and consequences that we cannot always see and predict. Now, we praise God that for us, these are not eternal consequences. Because of Jesus, we shall not face God's just wrath for our sins. Our eternal destiny is secure. But we cannot think that our sin today, even though it has been forgiven and put away through the death of Christ, that it won't bring us misery, long misery, tomorrow. Turn away from sin. Put it away. It leads us into misery Now for the last of these three big points, Israel's response to what has been said. And I think this is a case study for us in how we ought to respond when convicted as covenant rebels. First, notice that instead of continuing to reject God and the one whom God had sent, the people now adopt reverent fear towards both. Look at verse 18. The people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And actually, we see that same principle in our Acts reading just now. The people who had rejected and murdered Jesus a few days before had now to repent and trust in him. That must have been profoundly humbling to to embrace the person whom you have just rejected. But it also reinforces a key point. You and I cannot come to God and also reject the one whom he has sent. The rejection of Samuel was really serious, and in the end, the people had to come back to Samuel. And if you think that you're worshiping God, that you can come to God, that you can draw near to him, be in the right with him, but you're also rejecting Jesus, then you are dead wrong. Because salvation is on God's terms, not on ours, not on yours. And the terms that he has set are faith in the son whom he has sent. Nothing else. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Next response. You'll see here that the people acknowledge their specific sin. It's not a kind of a generic sin that they confess we're sinful, but they confess specific sin and they confess the appropriateness of divine punishment and they accompany it with an appeal to the one whom God sent. Look at verse 19. The people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. See, that, that, that also actually matches what we see in Acts, that there the people were cut to the heart for their sin, for crucifying their Lord, and they turn, they cry out to Peter, what shall we do? But in that case... Instead of Peter praying on their behalf, Peter directs them straight to Jesus. 
We can approach Jesus now with our sin at any time and in any place. And we can be confident that like Samuel, Jesus will never ever cease to intercede for us. He has already died to make that intercession possible. And he now stands and presents that intercession on our behalf. So if we come to him, and only if we come to him, we can, in fact, find security and peace. To conclude, where do you find security in this world? It's a false question, really, isn't it? There is no security in this world. If you do find security in this world, then in the end, you will be swept away with this world. But there is security in Jesus, and only in Jesus. Never, ever, ever, ever turn aside from Jesus after things that cannot profit or save. And don't teach your children to do so. For here we have the assurance that the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. If we come to Jesus, we will be secure. We are secure. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your covenant faithfulness, you sent your son to save us from our sin. Grant that we would find our security in him and in him alone. Amen.